0: Welcome to Working History, a podcast about the past, present, and future of workers in the American South. I'm your co host, Olivia Pascal, a graduate student in history at the University of Virginia and a journalist covering Southern labor and worker organizing.
1: And I'm Dave Anderson, the William Y. Thompson Endowed Professor of History at Louisiana Tech University. We're excited to be your series co host for the relaunch of the Working History podcast, a production of the Southern Labor Studies Association. You can expect monthly episodes, about half of which will be interviews with authors of new books on labor in the American South, just like we used to do.
0: But we'll also be featuring interviews with journalists, organizers, and activists whose work today extends and resonates with those histories.
1: So you can see we're experimenting with this new format, and we'd love your feedback and suggestions. Email us at workinghistorypodcast at gmail.com and find us on Twitter at Working history.
0: Our guest this week is Victoria Búlubásis, an award-winning journalist and filmmaker who's been covering agricultural labor in North Carolina for more than a decade. In her work, she aims to dispel myths about the global South's people and places against the backdrop of complex social, political, and personal histories. She often tells stories at the intersection of food, labor, and immigration, and has reported from the rural U.S. South and Midwest, Mexico, El Salvador, Guatemala, Costa Rica, and Greece. Her work has appeared in a number of outlets, including Enlace Latino NC, Southerly, NPR, Mother Jones, and the American Prospect. She's based in Durham, North Carolina, where she also DJs with the Mummies and the Poppies DJ Collective. Victoria, it's so good to see you and welcome to Working History. Thank you, Olivia, for having me. Um, to jump right in, um, you've been reporting on uh, farm workers, um, undocumented and H2A farm workers in North Carolina for more than a decade now. Could you explain a little bit about how the system works, why migrant label labor is so integral to North Carolina's system of agriculture, and what's changed over the years you've been covering it.
2: Yeah, I think what's really interesting about um, the way labor is so integral to to our um, society here, not only the fact that agriculture is a top industry. Um, in both uh, crops and meat processing and even Christmas trees. Um, But the fact that it's really changed the demographic landscape of our communities, but in many ways for so long, that's almost been hidden. And so I still think that there's a sort of shock and awe with um, people coming to terms with the fact that like there are immigrants in the South, there are immigrants in North Carolina, um, or there was especially, uh, over a decade ago when I started my career, um, and slowly that's been changing. Um, But at the end of the day, many workers or immigrants are seen as just that, labeled as a worker or an immigrant, and not necessarily new southerners or people part of our communities. Um, And so when I started reporting about farm workers, it was because I had met a group of um, youth out of Eastern North Carolina, They were um, in high school, and they were forming something called PJC, um, Poder Juvenil Campesino, Campesino, or Rural Youth Power, which is an organization advocating for farm workers. And I later learned that many of them were workers, and they had been working as young as 10, six years old in the fields um, here in North Carolina with their families. And so um, what's been interesting about seeing how conditions have changed and how the landscape has changed is because um, many of these these young teens are now adults who I have kept up with over the years who still are integral parts of my reporting whether as sources or um, as people helping me find sources they've helped vouch for me within communities so I can start earning people's trust Um, And I've seen the way that different policies have affected their lives over time and their families, and that many of them are fighting for the same thing that they were fighting for as kids, um, that still hasn't changed.
0: Yeah, and and to follow up on that a bit, um, you're reporting often centers on the stories of individual workers like these folks you've known for so long. Um, Could you talk about, you know, in your view, like why it's important to hear these stories um, and how they can contribute to our understanding
2: of socio-political and structural conditions of injustice? Of course. I mean, I think, as I said earlier, the fact that um, workers become a fabric of our communities is often overlooked. Um, And so rather than keep the idea of labor and the its histories in a silo you know i'm i'm always trying to show the human side of work um and i very much detest the way people say you're humanizing people like they're human already like that verb (laughs) i hate that word um it's more so uplifting the voices that are already there um giving them a platform and and having them lead the narrative while also doing accountability reporting. So a lot of the labor reporting ends up being accountability reporting. Um, And because in accountability reporting, it's often hard as a journalist and an investigative reporter to get people to go on record um, or to find information. Um, In the meantime, as you're looking for that, you can also uplift the stories and show the effects of policies and worker conditions. Um, I think I lost my train of thought of it on like what you were asking exactly, but um, you know those are, those are the reasons why a lot of that, a lot of that happens.
0: A lot of your reporting is bilingual, it's published in Spanish and English, or often just in Spanish. Um, and I'd be interested to have you reflect a little bit on how you think about your reporting, who it's for, um, why you're
2: doing it, um, and in the context of farm worker reporting especially. That's such a great question, and um, it's something that I continue to struggle with um, it's It's been really interesting to see sort of a generational shift in journalism, especially um, where um what I was taught in j school I graduated in two thousand five undergrad um, is very different than what I have gone back to teach students um, as far as you know this idea of objectivity and Um, audience. Uh, They're intertwined. And I think it really depends. Um, What I really value about being able to have worked with Enlace Latino during the pandemic is that it was the first time that, you know, most of my reporting is in Spanish. um, And it was the first time I could just send a link. And the, the person that I spoke with who really poured out a lot of their their personal story, their time with me, a lot of traumas um, were sort of rehashed. They could actually read the story and understand what I did um, in the past. You know, I, I launched my career I, I think <laughs> um, at the Indie Week where I contributed for at least ten years, um, and so an alternative news weekly. I was able to do things a bit differently, and I was able to have lyrical narratives that like led a reported piece. But they weren't in Spanish and I would often call people over the phone and read it in English, but like simultaneously translate for them. So I would like have a story time session, like this is what I did. And then they were on a few occasions, I would just translate them myself. Um, But now I didn't have to do that. And what's really been interesting is as the demographic shifts, as I mentioned, um, I've had people tell me thank you so much for publishing that in both languages. I read it in English, but my mom prefers Spanish. And so I was able to send her the story and we were able to talk about it together at breakfast. And I'm like, that's great and exactly what we want to do, you know? Um, and so it also like, it's always very validating for people to find someone they can trust and hopefully they can trust me um, to share their story and just feel like there's worth in it and value. Um, and so this is an added element, um, and it should also be a priority that local news is accessible at the bare minimum, um, because there, there aren't a lot of local news outlets um, providing other languages.
0: Yeah, um, I want to get a little bit into some of the specific reporting you've done in, in North Carolina um, recently and, and over the past few years. Um, So during the pandemic, there was a lot of reporting on poor working conditions faced by workers across the food system, um, from farms to processing plants. Um, You and I actually both reported on these things. You were in North Carolina, I was in Arkansas. um, And a lot of your stories for Enlace Latino and Southerly um, and and some other outlets focused on how workers and communities were forced to take matters of public health and working conditions into their own hands. Could you talk a bit about some of those stories, how they came about, what the problems were, um, and how you approached them, and maybe any changes that you're aware of since then as well?
2: Of course. Um, Yeah, I think what was interesting is that um, I had started 2020 um, with a grant um, to work at Enlace Latino NC um, and later collaborate with Southerly to focus on the way um, our emergency systems are failing um, and disaster relief and um, recovery are failing our Spanish-speaking communities. Um, and then the pandemic hit and it just kind of connected so, so so messily, <laughs> um, with with that sort of theme, and um, I was thrust into like more COVID health reporting. But there was never any doubt that it was a labor story. Um, you know, we kept hearing this moniker "essential worker." We kept hearing like all this praise for essential workers, but like these essential workers were not being treated fairly um, with clarity at at their jobs. Um, and often sort of like in harsher conditions than before. Um, For me, what was really helpful as a journalist um, was that these were communities I had already been working with. And so the problems were not only persisting, um, so we were able to like pull back the veil and like these problems have always existed, but also here's what happens when you don't, when you don't um, provide solutions. but I, I also did not want to further victimize folks and create this angle of like, especially in like a very heated political climate. Um, and so I was I was looking for stories where people were actually taking matters into their own hands. Um, and a lot of them were coming to me because, like I said, I knew a lot of the communities and they'd like, you should talk to this person, or my mom is doing this at the poultry plant she works at. Um, and so we did stories like this. Um, and one that uh, culminated into a podcast that I was really proud of because I'd never done, I've done films, but I'd never done purely audio work before. Um, was something that we published at Southerly and Enlace Latino NC with the help of um, an environmental justice podcast called Living Downstream. Um, And it was interesting because, you know, we're talking about COVID affecting poultry workers, and it was considered an environmental story, which is very broad. Um, But all these intersections happened during the pandemic where a labor story became a health story, became an immigration story. Um, And so that was sort of where it was interesting because the niche I had developed starting as a food writer, um, getting into labor stories and immigration work was really sort of like saw saw the light as a a worthy (laughs) topic of interest for so many people. Um, And so I wanted to take advantage of all eyes on that particular sort of issue in society to show like really badass, powerful workers. Um, and so that's sort of why I I framed the stories that way, but it was really not up to me. It was up to what I was seeing, what community wanted, wanted. At the end of the day, I would ask them what they wanted to highlight. And so that's how those stories came about.
0: Yeah, could you um go into a little bit more detail about that story that the podcast was about um, and um, yeah, who it was
2: about and what they were what they were doing. Yeah, so it was about um, a community health worker, also called promotor or promotora in feminine, um, which the CDC um, also calls promotor promotora, um, and uh, her name is Esmeralda, and her mother Marta works at a poultry plant in eastern North Carolina, in Duplin County, um, and so you know, in the beginning of the pandemic, they were among the first people in their community to get COVID. And this was when all of us were confused. It was pre-vaccine. We had no idea what was happening and people were dying. Um, And they were kind of shunned by their own community. And, you know, fast forward two years later, they became leaders that people were turning to because um, Esmeralda was trained by the Episcopal Farmworker Ministry to become a health promoter and she was giving information about vaccines, um, helping to dispel, dispel myths, because there was a lot of misinformation on the internet that was affecting Spanish-speaking community particularly. Um, and they were hosting clinics. Um, they were doing Facebook Lives in Spanish. They were just organizing everything. And her mother was organizing workers when um, the plant was not providing um, immediate access to vaccines or or protection, um, PPE early on. What was also, you know, I wanted to include so much in that podcast, and I was able to weave in a historical perspective by um, talking to a friend, Charlotte Ammons, who now works at FarmAid, Aid, um, about her experience because she comes from a Black Southern community, it, also in Duplin County, and her aunts and mother ha- and other mostly women relatives have worked in the same poultry plant as Mar- Martha. So we sort of parallel these experiences of like, you know, historically there was enslaved labor. Now you have black women at a certain point in time in history working in these plants and then later mostly Latino women and trying to show that there's like a solidarity in this worker movement. Um, And you often see a lot of uh, black and brown distinction and separation. Um, But during the pandemic, there were a lot more community organizations trying to work together with um, like black and Latinos in Eastern North Carolina. And so I wanted to highlight that a bit about how historically this is how North Carolina has always operated. Um, And through that, we also did some accountability reporting about um, the fact that uh, the health department was not um, giving us the names of the poultry plants with outbreaks um, for a very long time. So Leah Douglas at Fern was creating this national sort of accountability database where weekly she was providing um, the rates. And so that was something I relied on in my reporting. So I also had her interviewed about why this moment in history was so important as well. And so, um, but at the end of the day, it was Martha and Esmeralda's voices. Um, and I let them lead with Spanish and then I interpreted afterward, but I didn't want to like hire a voice actor and cut them off. Um, so there were a lot of things that we did with that podcast that were a little different, but I'm really proud of it and them. Yeah, um, that Leah's database
0: was also just like nice. so integral for my reporting in Arkansas and really highlighted for me Just like how if you don't even have information to start from like you can't you can't get anywhere, if you don't know the poultry plant if you don't. um, Yeah, in Arkansas at some point they stopped requiring plants that had less than a certain number of cases to disclose that they had any cases and um, that kind of question of information access. Um, as you showed in your reporting, is like so important not just for workers in their workplaces, but for yeah. kind of this like accountability. And it's so interesting because I think
2: the pandemic really shifted the way journalists and, in particular, editors operate. Because in the past, if you don't have those details, it's almost a non-story, or no one wants to publish anything. But the anecdotes were so strong and rooted in in real. Um, Consequences, and we couldn't ignore that. And there were ways for us to at least say, "Well, I interviewed this many workers, and they all told me the same things across so many different places." And that was something that an editor maybe in the past would be wary of publishing, but it it turned into something that we needed to publish because otherwise the stories were not going to get out there.
0: Yeah, and you had workers obviously knowing that there was an active COVID outbreak in their plant, and then you know three or four weeks later you'd get the yes. numbers from the government they're like oh there's, a, there's an active covid outbreak in this planet right um, yeah
2: and press releases from from corporations coming out after you wrote a story for example mm-hmm. you know um
0: yeah yeah Um, So in October, um, you and Ben Stockton published an investigation that ran in Mother Jones, the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, and and Los Latino about a North Carolina lawmaker who runs a large tobacco farm um, that has been consistently uh, accused of worker exploitation. Could you start by just walking us through that story? I know it's a pretty complex one. Yeah, I'll
2: do my best. Um, So... Um, I got involved because the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, which is, I would compare it to like the ProPublica of the UK, um, reached out to me because they had, they had been looking for a labor reporter who spoke Spanish in North Carolina. Um, And then they had seen that I had done a lot of work on tobacco farmers and farm workers. Um, And Ben Stockton, who is currently in the US, but Um, a British journalist, has been covering the tobacco industry globally for quite a few years. And so he was already investigating um, Reynolds American's contribution to Senator Brent Jackson's political campaigns. Um, Also knowing that Brent Jackson owned tobacco farms and had been taken to court a couple times by members of FLOC, the Farm Labor Organizing Committee, which is a union, um, here in North Carolina. And so they wanted me to help incorporate the worker stories as Ben continued to investigate, um, and sort of like me assisting and in, in figuring out where there were connections. Um, and so I, through my networks, it took, it took a while and this, we had started the reporting prior to tobacco season starting. So H2A visa workers come here on a seasonal basis. and so. They are mostly from Mexico, um, and North Carolina still continues to be, if not the most, um, the state with one of the highest numbers of H-2A visa applications. Um, It's a temporary work visa by the U.S. government that allows for people to come. In this case, they arrive around end of April, early May, um, and then they often leave six months later. Um, And so we started this reporting uh, in January of last year, and um, I needed to find workers who were planning on coming back, but they were in Mexico. Um, And so I found two different workers from two different cases against Jackson. Um, Of course, they decided to remain anonymous, um, which is very typical, because even though they no longer work for Jackson, they don't want to be blacklisted which has also happened in the past and not been given visas because they rely on this income for their families um and so that's how that story started and basically as ben continued to find um sort of you know the way reynolds was supporting this very conservative politician um and also buying his tobacco, which could present a conflict of interest. Um, Workers were, were still, you know, denouncing the way he treated them. Um, He has been accused of not paying wages, um, which he has like, later settled and and paid back wages on. Um, Some of his employees, his staff, has referred, according to several workers who spoke to me, has referred to them as slaves. Um, they were not allowed water breaks, um, which is, these are all very typical, um, <laughs> typical things I've heard throughout the years. And so we did this story, it's, it's a honker of a story, um, and we published in Mother Jones, and even though I no longer work with um, Enlace Latino on a regular basis, I really thought it would be important to have this story in Spanish as well. So we had it translated and also published in Enlace Latino. And we are soon to release a podcast um, that Ben and I did with Worker Voices and others um, in Spanish and English about sort of the behind the scenes of the story.
0: Um, yeah. It- are there any updates to the story since, since you've published, um, maybe that you're including in the podcast, um, and I'll direct listeners to the podcast as well. Um,
2: yeah, I mean, I think, um, there's a couple of things. So like Ben and I, in our discussion for the podcast, um, you know, we reiterated that flock, the, the union, has been asking Reynolds to recognize the rights of workers through um, a memorandum of understanding for the past 10 years. Um, And as far as we know, nothing has been agreed upon. Um, So they have, they're continuing to have ongoing conversations with Reynolds. Um, And, you know, Ben's take on this from being the one super embedded in the reporting on Jackson is that it really hasn't affected. These issues haven't affected his ambitions um, politically or his electability. Um, and that we know, because he has been quoted um, through other sources publicly, that he plans on running for North Carolina Commissioner for Agriculture. And so what's tricky about that is that he if, if we ever want change in the way um, the like the right to organize and you know, we're a right to work state. Um, we can be confident that Jackson is going to continue to vote against those sort of things um, if he becomes you know in this higher position. Um, Justin Flores who um, represented Flock as an organizer at the time and had organized with them for several years said that like if you compare 2014 through now things are better. Um, He thinks that because the members keep speaking up and pushing um, that his, he quote says, typically employers tend to behave a lot better when they do not want a union on their farm. And the general sentiment is that Jackson got the message and doesn't want to have another lawsuit. So at least it may not <laughs> policy-wise be changing, but that there are farmers, um, you know, farm owners who are are doing better. Um Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: So um, Jackson is not only, you know, exploiting workers on his own farm, um, but he also has this political power um, and political ambition, um, but where where he has kind of access to levers of power and control over policy that impacts the work he's doing on his own farm. Um, Could you talk a bit about how, how that relationship comes out in the story and what you learned through the process of reporting it?
2: I think what's super interesting about Jackson is that fact that Reynolds American is donating money, thousands and thousands of dollars, um, to his campaign, and Reynolds American has said that they support labor rights. Um, but, but many you know could argue that it's lip service. Um, you know Ben found that they did all these audits and and they. That they are like looking into their supply chain. Um, and according to flock members that have talked to both Ben and I, they have said that they support the freedom of association among the workers um, who pick the tobacco that they're they're buying to make their cigarettes, right? Um, but then, how can you support, you know, verbally support the freedom of association and the freedom to unionize? when you're giving money to somebody that's actively working to to weaken the unions in North Carolina. Um, the other interesting idea here is that the workers that I spoke to were sort of unaware of these power plays happening locally. They didn't understand that like their former boss was a politician um, in a position to influence, you know, what the, their livelihoods, beyond the field right like in, in policy that that so many people are pushing to change um and i know that flock sees these lawsuits as significant victories and they and they are um and it's a way to encourage more farm workers to speak up not just on jackson's farm but on other other people's farms. so you know we can say nothing's changed but then if it's um it's empowering more workers to speak up. There's so much fear in these communities um, because of like historical blacklisting that has happened um, through the NC- NCGA and others. Um, so, you know, there there is a posit- positive outcome in many ways, but then the fact that like the corporation is embedded with, with a politician um, as like, a promoter of his politics through through campaign funding, but also in a business negotiation, um, that's where it gets really tricky.
0: Yeah, and you really see the kind of like webs of of power and control and influence um just kind of surface, which is what is so interesting about that story is kind of the level from the intimate and the personal all the way up to you know Reynolds tobacco, which and like the North Carolina General Assembly.
2: Right, exactly. I mean, it's I think. I was really excited that they were looking into this because it sort of like all of us have been doing so much reporting on farm workers but this particular investigation following the money trail is just like there's your proof you know um and it's really hard to deny like the power of that influence um that corporate influence in politics and yeah how it affects like thousands of workers
0: um so this is a this is a podcast um, by the Southern Labor Studies Association. Many of us are historians, um, and so um, I am interested to hear you think a little bit about how you encounter or use history um, in your work and in a new journalism.
2: So much, <laughs> um, I so you know I I studied as a journalist and also majored in Spanish, so I could do this work better, hopefully. Um, <laughs> But then as an adult, after years of reporting on a lot of these labor issues, I went back and did a folklore master's program at UNC in the Department of American Studies. Um, and one thing that I learned there was in that field, rather than call someone a subject or a source, you use the term collaborator. Um, and it very much sort of blew my mind in a way that I could just name what I had been doing. And and it really spoke to my ethics as a journalist. Um, And through that, you know, I've sat at so many dinner tables with so many different families from so many different countries across Latin America specifically. um, And they've shared sort of like their everyday experiences. And in, in my head, my light bulb would go off and be like, wait, they are here from El Salvador on a TPS visa because of um, our involvement, or this person was a bracero because of, you know, Reagan allowing them in. And so understanding that essentially within labor history, people have been pawns. And so there's been sort of accommodations made for specific migrant groups throughout American history, um, based on you know their contribution and what they could contribute to our particular economy, or the way we've, we as U.S. Americans, have affected their sort of like, um, you know we've been complicit in a lot of their work. Um, one story that is maybe less like inherently labor specific, but one that I just sort of realized I really needed to include history here was um, I had gone to El Salvador to find a young teen who had been deported when he was 18 years old from Charlotte. Um, And he had been here since he was 14. And what was super interesting is that when he had crossed the border, he was part of this unaccompanied minor crisis um, under the Obama administration that like people were just, really upset about and the Obama administration too but then the moment he became a legal adult under the Obama administration he was captured on his way to work with his father um, and put in detention and there were six young men from North Carolina that activists had called hashtag NC6 who were in this position um only two of them were deported, one of them I could not find a trace of, and I finally found this young man in El Salvador, but I, when I was learning his story, you know, he lives with his grandparents now there, and it's so interesting, because his grandparents have tourist visas, so they could visit his parents and his sister, who was born in Charlotte, and his parents came when he was young, and left him behind, because they had TPS visas, because they were involved in the war in El Salvador. Um, And so I needed to include the fact that, and and while I was in El Salvador, I was meeting people my age, you know, people born in the eighties who remember the war. And so it's a very recent history that the U.S. was involved in. And they, um, you know, the U.S. military supported the El Salvador military. um, And they massacred people. And it, now historically, I mean, that's, that's what people are talking about there. And so, um, in they, his parents had to flee that, but they couldn't bring him as a baby. And then he had to wait 14 years to cross on his own in a way that is considered illegal. Um, even though he presented and, and requested asylum at the border. And so he is the one person in his entire family who has no protection. And I wanted to highlight that because, it's it's a lot of people make the argument that like why should we let anybody in our country and you know it's not about whether I agree with that or not it's about showing that like here are some reasons people are here and many of them have to do with the U.S. Mm. and so immigration is in our backyard like it's not just um, like these are people that we are grocery shopping with and folks in our communities um, and people with now first generation American children who are becoming, you know, like me, I'm, I'm a first generation American in my family or first and a half <laughs> um, and, you know, it's, we're going to college and growing up and, and sort of learning about our family history and realizing that like, it's all connecting to the now.
0: Uh, Thank you so much for being here, Victoria. Um, We really appreciate um, your insights and uh, hearing about your reporting, and we'll link to a bunch of it in the show notes um, so people can go and read it and listen to it and and watch it.
2: Thank you, Olivia. I really appreciate um, the work of this this podcast and organization and also your work in particular. It's just been um, so wonderful to read, and I know some of it has also been translated in other languages for people to better understand, so thanks, thanks for doing what you do.
1: Thank you. Thanks for listening to Working History, a podcast on the New Books Network channel, New Books in the American South. Email us at workinghistorypodcast@gmail.com at gmail.com and find us on Twitter at Working History.
0: Working History is a production of the Southern Labor Studies Association. Learn more and become a member at www.southernlaborstudies.org. Thanks for listening.